The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to Paradigm Shift. I'm Jill Shee. On this program, we take an in-depth look at some of the most contentious topics facing society today. You'll hear meaningful discussion and debate from Orange County residents and professionals. Join us as we seek to promote an informed citizenship through a straightforward, nonpartisan format. This is KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. Hello. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. I'm your host, Jill Shee. On today's program, we will be talking about how racial classifications and preferences may be affecting the admittance rate of Asian Americans in higher education. The subject of racial biases against Asian Americans has been gaining traction in recent weeks after a civil rights complaint was filed last month alleging that Harvard University sets a higher bar for Asian Americans than other groups in its admissions process. Today, we will be speaking to Sarah Young, a member of the Chinese American Association of Orange County, which is one of 64 organizations that filed the civil rights complaint against Harvard. We will also be hearing from Claire Kim, a UCI Asian Studies and Political Science professor who has some thought-provoking perspectives on race and minority classifications. But before we get to that, let's talk about Harvard's response to this federal discrimination complaint. In a written statement, Harvard University's general counsel, Robert Iuliano, Uh, said that Harvard's approach to admissions is fully lawful. He said that within its holistic admissions process and as part of its effort to build a diverse class, Harvard College has demonstrated a strong record of recruiting and admitting Asian American students. For instance, the percentage of admitted Asian American students to Harvard College has increased from 17.6% to 21% over the past decade. Now, last year, a conservative advocate, Edward Bloom, and his group called Students for Fair Admissions argued in a federal lawsuit that Harvard uses preferences to reach specific racial balance on his campus. Speaking to a group hosted by Houston Chinese Alliance back in April of this year, Bloom said he is on a mission to ask the courts to end the use of race in its admissions process indefinitely. The time has come when America is so multiracial and multi-ethnic that it is no longer uh, a question of whites versus blacks, which is what the affirmative action policies were originally designed to address. Now we have a multiracial, multi-ethnic society in which Asians are being penalized There's a bamboo ceiling uh, 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 against Asians in America's most competitive universities, and who is benefiting from these quotas against Asians? African Americans are benefiting, Hispanics are benefiting, and whites are benefiting. Bloom's group, Students for Fair Admissions, is asking Harvard University to open their admissions data to the public claiming that the Ivy League school is using racial quotas. 
You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM. This is Paradigm Shift with Jill Shee. We go now to an interview I conducted with Claire Kim. She's a UCI professor of political science and Asian American studies. She was familiar with Edward Bloom and his investment in this case. She also acknowledged his previous work advocating for civil rights in higher education reading of the facts of the case, but um, before I get back to that, yes, it was Ed Bloom who was also behind the um, Fisher v. Texas affirmative action case in 2013 and has been a very uh, loud, outspoken lobbyist against uh, the use of race-conscious remedies in higher education and generally in society. And um, one of the interesting fact trends in the last 10 or 15 years has been um, the emergence of Asian Americans, not just as sort of what Sumi Cho calls a mascot for white conservatives who are going after affirmative action, but really Asian American conservative Asian Americans coming to the front lines and being sort of the lead players in several um, high-profile affirmative action type cases. This is not the first one. This is the first one, I think, of its stature. Um, and it will be a precedent because the group that formed to bring this lawsuit, Students for Fair Admissions, which is mm-hmm. Ed Bloom's right. group, um, has already brought another uh, case against University of North Carolina. And clearly this is precedent setting. They intend to go campus to campus, like, to, you know, addressing um, this issue at various uh, selective colleges and universities across the country. Okay. Um, so... Was there anything that surprised you about this story? I mean, I know you, you're, you're emphasizing the word alleged. Um, so what's your, what's your general take? What surprised you? Um, it didn't surprise me at all. In fact, what I find most interesting about the case is that it's really, in my view, sort of the inevitable outcome of uh, a certain logic of thinking about Asian Americans um, as minorities in American society. And um, so I see, you know, Asian Americans were first characterized as minorities in probably World War II, um, middle of the 20th century. And that logic has played out over the past many decades. I see the Harvard case as an inevitable outgrowth of that initial characterization of Asian Americans during the war as minorities, meaning they're characterized as like blacks um, in a structural position of oppression or racial domination relative to white society. And that, I think, is a false equivalence. So we could talk more about that. But the fact that they were characterized as minorities or as like blacks um, lays the groundwork for the present case, which argues, um, if you read the complaint against Harvard, that Asian Americans are a doubly burdened or disfavored minority. That is, they face discrimination by whites generally in society. And then on top of that, these race-conscious remedies um, in the form of affirmative action programs and undergraduate admissions doubly burden or um, burden them twice. Um, And one can only accept that reasoning, right, if one accepts that Asian Americans are a minority to begin with, that is, that that categorization is accurate. And that's what I I am challenging in the book that I'm writing. Okay, so then... I'm very curious. What What is the characterization that would be accurate to you then? Well, here I'm drawing upon um, the work of Jared Sexton, who's the director of African American Studies here at UCI. And one of his articles in particular, People of Color Blindness, which came out in 2010, we, where he characterizes a um, the notion of a people of color, right, this coalition, third world type coalition, 
as character as constituting a certain kind of blindness to asymmetries of power and status among non-white groups. Mm-hmm. And um, that is essentially what's happening also with the characterization of Asian Americans to begin with Japanese Americans during World War II as a model minority beginning at that point. Um, and of course, we focus a lot on the model aspect of the model minority phrase, but what we don't focus on is the initial presumptive characterization of Asians as minorities, right? And again, creating this false equivalence between them and blacks. Um, so what I think is the uh, better, more historically accurate or truthful characterization is that Asian Americans, while they stand in a um, position of uh, uh lesser privilege compared to whites, where they've been discriminated against vis-a-vis whites or by whites, um, they also are immunized against certain kinds of um, uh, discrimination that blacks regularly suffer in the society. So I'm thinking of segregation with all of its ramifications, mass incarceration, police violence. Um, And the reason that they're immunized against those um, practices and beliefs is that they occupy, um, In I'm going to argue in the book, a different kind of status than blacks, right? So that the minority idea, the minoritization of Asian Americans that started in the 1940s and continues today um, is a lie, right? And Mm -hmm. so if one operates on the basis of that lie, it creates all kinds of contradictions and distortions. And those are, I think, what are sort of bubbling to the surface with the Harvard case. Okay. Very interesting. Um, Then how do we, I mean, you're not saying that Asian Americans did not experience some level of discrimination or um, racial, you know, moral ra- racial acts, because then you have when the Chinese population came out here, you, I mean, you know, the N word was for Chinese coolies. Um, so they did experience some sort of discrimination and segregation um, and violence in, in a lot of cases. Um, but you are saying that the model minority label to that probably separates them now from maybe say what the bl- what the black pop communities are experiencing. No, I would say uh, the, the my book starts with Chinese exclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of the original Asian American experience, and um, and it begins there, and it goes through internment, and then um, uh, LA nineteen ninety two, and other kinds of events. Um, so what I would argue is that, yes, the Asian American experience is one of being racialized as an other, um, particularly as a f- perpetually foreign other. Um, and it is an experience characterized by um, marginalization, discrimination of various kinds. Um, that has been the, a hallmark of the Asian American experience. At the same time, that doesn't equate the Asian American experience to the black experience. And so I'm following here, again, um, some of the the work in black studies, which is asserting that there's a categorical difference um, in terms of how Asians and blacks have been classified or categorized in the American racial order. And one of the effects of that has been that Asians, despite the ongoing experience of discrimination and marginalization, are still immunized from certain kinds of hardship and suffering that that are regularly infl- and structurally inflicted upon blacks. So um, I don't think that there was a 
radical shift in the 1940s. A lot of Asian American studies literature does suggest that there was some sort of 180-degree turn Mm -hmm. with the emergence of the model minority myth in that period. And I don't see that. I see what I'm going to argue in the book instead is continuity from the 1800s to the present in the sense that Asians were always positioned in the racial order in a different place than blacks. That the positioning um, remained the same, mm-hmm. but the characterizations, superficial characterizations of Asians changed in the 1940s. So, yes, there were, um, they were primarily denigrating um, attributes, right, um, attached to being Asian prior to that. And those were some of the attributes that justified exclusion, um, internment, etc. But starting in the 1940s, you see the rehabilitation of Japanese Americans to begin with, which um, then spread to a larger uh, idea about Asians being a model minority. Um, and what's interesting about that is on the surface, we see the 180 degree turn, but underneath, I think there's the continuity of structural positions. Okay. And then right now, let's let's talk about, I and mean, we'll get back to the Harvard uh, lawsuit, but I mean, right now, the how do you feel Asians are portrayed, you know, in, in, the, in the mainstream, in the media, and, and certainly, I agree, we, you know, we haven't had similar experiences to the blacks. Um, but I feel, as an Asian American woman myself, I feel um, a lot of these images or portrayals of, of Asian Americans in mainstream media isn't necessarily accurate. And I don't feel we have very many avenues to kind of vo- have our voice out there. I mean, we have avenues, but I don't think we're as heard, you know, as loud, as heard, I, you know, whatever way you want to say that. I mean, so what what do you feel about that? Right, so this is a theme that one often hears in Asian American circles, right, the idea of Asian American invisibility, that if a black person gets killed, then it's in the news, and if an Asian person gets killed, no one hears about it. I think that's that idea is um, based on a fundamental misconception, and that misconception is that visibility is somehow equated to power, social power. And I think one of the problems for blacks, one of the things that marks them in this society as being in a different status is their hyper-visibility, right? That the, in, in terms of their, um, the state's use of surveillance powers, or the, you know, the police's use of violence, um, there is a hyper-visibility attached to blackness that is not in any way um, a reflection of power, in fact, quite the opposite. So for Asian Americans, we're the most, we're the fastest growing minority, um, quote unquote minority. Um, so we're now hovering right below 6%, I believe, of, of the national population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the presence of Asian Americans um, in larger numbers is a post-1965 phenomenon. So it's a, it's a fairly recently formed population in, in terms of numbers, and it's rapidly growing. I don't think the quote unquote invisibility will last for long. Um, but going back to the first part of your question, again, I'm not asserting in any way that um, racial racialization or marginalization doesn't shape Asian American experiences. What I'm trying to do in the book or what I try to do in my classes is ask people to situate that picture in the larger picture of this social order being a social order that is structured by um, anti-blackness. Okay. So... Um I guess I, I would like to kind of talk about your personal experience there at, at Harvard. Then um, you, you did mention it was a while ago, but you look—you don't look 
like it was a long time ago. Um, so what was your experience there? Were you one of many Asian Americans uh, enrolled at Harvard or was, you know, were you sort of a, a, a novelty? <laughs> I don't know the exact numbers of uh, Asians who were enrolled at that time. I know that right now they're roughly 21% of Harvard's freshman incoming class. Um, so the numbers have gone up over the years. I was, at that time, um, I grew up in a suburb, an all-white suburb in Maryland. Um, my parents were not race conscious. Okay. Um, I went to an all-white high school, oh, okay. pretty much all-white. Um, went to college and studied Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. Didn't give a thought to race. Didn't really think about my own racial standing or status. Um, and it wasn't until I got to grad school, you know, thank goodness for grad school, I, it opened my eyes to um, the reality of race in the society. And then ever since then, I, I've just been really interested in it. But I have to say that was sort of my pre-conscious period in college <laughs> where I, I wasn't thinking a lot about those issues. And that's so interesting. Uh, it's really interesting that, you know, and that's that's the type of thing I think more people more races around the nation need to know that, you know, we're all very different. We all have had <laughs> vast experiences as um, Asian Americans, and we, we, we have our own, obviously, cultures, but our experiences also shape who we are. And yet, um, here it is today, you are in a professor in, in Asian American studies. So maybe uh, maybe you can explain to us how you how you developed a passion for it then. I went in graduate school um, studying black politics and urban politics, first became aware of race, and wrote my dissertation and first book on black Korean conflict in New York City. And uh, that was very eye-opening. One of the things I did for that book, um, which was life-changing, was interview black nationalist activists who were organizing protests against Korean grocers in Brooklyn. And I had never been exposed to the kinds of things they were talking about, mm -hmm. and um, it really was life-changing to hear their understandings of uh, what it meant to be black, what it meant to um, be a racialized black subject in the U.S. And I was particularly interested in that set of conflicts because it pit pitted, you know, two racialized groups against one another. And so I, I wondered, you know, just at a very elemental level, level, what does justice require here if you have two racialized groups? And I, I think I sort of sorted out an answer in that book, but those questions continue to occupy me, which is why I'm writing another book on a, you know, on a similar topic. Okay. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I'm just kind of going off of my own perspective uh, and my own knowledge. Um, here in America, Korean parents typically do not favor their children dating African-American uh, people. So, I mean, is that something that you have explored, experienced? I know you, you had a different experience. Your parents weren't necessarily race conscious. Race, race con conscious. So. I'm just curious on, on what else you discovered in that, that first book. Oh, that's a lot of questions packed in yeah, there, Jill. Okay. Um, kind of sneak them all in there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Well, when I, I should correct myself. When I said my parents weren't race conscious, they were, um, they shared the anti-black um, feelings of the society. Um, so in that sense, they're race conscious. What I meant by not race conscious, they didn't raise me to be particularly, to think of myself as Asian or mm -hmm. Korean particularly. Um, 
so that developed uh, later. But um, I don't think that I would single out Koreans as being, um, you know, hostile to the idea of their children dating black people. I think this is what it means to live in an anti-black society. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that the um, that Korean immigrant parents and mine were immigrants, are immigrants. that they um, have certain intense expectations and understandings of what life will be like here. Um, and those can be very rigid expectations um, in terms of what kinds of um, professions they want their children to pursue, what kinds of majors they want their um, children to undertake in college. You know, this is something, as a professor, I hear a lot from my students, mm-hmm. not just from my Korean students, but other Asian students too, that. Um, their parents don't want them to major in ethnic studies um, or even political science. They want them to marry uh, to major in um, biological sciences and mm-hmm. to be pre-med and things like that. So um, th- there's all of that going on, too. Okay. Well, well wonderful. I, I just was very curious. And, of course, yes, I mean, you, you touched upon something that I was going to ask later, which was um, for our listeners who may not understand Asian cultures. There is a bit of a, an expectation by Asian parents, um, some Asian parents, not all, of course, for their children to excel in this country, to do the absolute best. And there is, an, uh, there is a pressure for them. And in and, and relating back to Harvard U- University, I feel that, you know, this, the Asian American kids are feeling the pull, the tug to get the best grades, to go to the best colleges, to get that high-paying job. I mean, but, you know, you're contending that this is a social, I mean, how is this different from any other race? But um, maybe you can speak to that. I mean, are the standards higher for, the Asian American parents have higher standards? I mean, are are we thinking about that culturally or? Well, I think that uh, I don't want to slip into the mistake of saying we're all like Amy Chua, the Tiger Mom. <laughs> yes, that article. <laughs> However, um, there I don't, wouldn't say they're higher expectations. Mm-hmm. I would say they're different expectations mm-hmm. that some Asian parents have uh, in terms of have, thinking very narrowly about you know excelling in school and going to an Ivy League school and getting certain kinds of jobs. Um, and, and I think that has a very distorting, damaging effect on young people. Um, it's something I'm very conscious of as a parent. Um, but on the other hand, you know, one of the dangers of that orientation is, uh, so one on the one hand, one can look at the damaging effects upon Asian youth, Asian American youth, um, as they have to contend with those kinds of parental expectations. But on the other hand, we, we should also look at the broader social implications of that trend to the extent it's true. And I don't know what the... Um, I can't give you figures on that, but the broader social implications include a sense of entitlement, Mm -hmm. I think. And that's what we see with the the Chinese-American parents who are bringing the uh, Harvard lawsuit, right, or the Chinese-Americans, largely Chinese-American, some other Asian-American students, that sense of, well, we worked hard, and we have a 4.0 GPA, and we did several extracurriculars, so we should have gotten into Harvard. Right. It was our entitlement to get into Harvard. And if we didn't, there's something terribly wrong, and we're going to bring a lawsuit and file a civil rights complaint. Mm-hmm. You know, To me, um, that, that sense of entitlement, that sense that this is a meritocracy, this is a society where there is true equality of opportunity and something has gone horribly wrong, 
for these Asian American students is um, a misreading and a misunderstanding of a larger context where we don't have equality of opportunity um, and we have more equality of opportunity for some groups than others and we, it is not a meritocracy and we have um, in particular the black population um, because I think we live in an anti-black society suffering a kind of separation and degradation that other groups do not. So to again to situate that Asian American parent sense of entitlement in that larger picture really starts to raise questions about the Harvard lawsuit. Yes, and uh, just building on that point, Harvard has responded to the preferential treatment allegations by saying they do not just look at scores, but they judge each applicant holistically. Um, So do you think that this response by Harvard puts Asian Americans at a disadvantage to admit admittance in Ivy League schools. I mean, the, the whole concept of holistically, because as you mentioned, um, Asian American parents definitely push for study, get the high grades, get your SAT scores, that, that there's a major push there. But what about the whole of the, of the child? Mm-hmm. I think holistic admissions has been very controversial. Um, and one of the reasons it is so is because it does seem to leave an, create an opening for discriminating against Asian American students, for instance, for saying by saying, well, they're too narrow, Asian American students, right? They, they only think about math and SATs, and, and they're not broad, you know, well-rounded like other students. So there is, I think, an opening there. Um, on the other hand, holistic admissions was put into place to try to um, create diversity within undergraduate bodies, right? And that is what the sole rationale for affirmative action that the Supreme Court now um, endorses is it's sort of put aside and rejected the idea that affirmative action can serve as compensation or remedy for racial discrimination. And it now says, you know, um, in the last several major cases on the topic, that affirmative action um, that is taking race into account, not letting race be determinative, but taking race into account in undergraduate admissions is permissible as long as, um, or rather because the diversity of the classroom in colleges and universities is a compelling state interest. Mm -hmm. So um, that leads us to the question of what is diversity? How how does one achieve diversity? And one of the interesting questions that spins off of that is, can you have too many Asians, right? Because um, if you have 21% of of Harvard's incoming class is Asian, when the population of Asians in the United States is under 6%, right? It starts to raise the question, well, what do these parents mean when they say they're being discriminated against or there's a cap on Asian Americans? So, and of course, being at UCI, which is on the mainland, I think has the highest percentage of Asian Americans, undergraduates, 50-some percent, um, the question arises naturally, what, you know, how do you preserve diversity and can there be such a thing as too many Asians? Um, and and that's sort of, I think, a really important question to grapple with, um, particularly if one does not accept the idea that there is equality of opportunity and that people who um, do very well by all the standard admissions measures um, necessarily are more deserving right, than, mm-hmm. than other students who don't do as well on those measures. Okay. And you mentioned that 6% in the nation, but he, right here in Orange County, Currently, we have the thir- we're the third largest Asian population in the United States, and between the years 2000-2010, there was a 41% increase of Asian Americans. So I'm, I'm sure uh, 
So this idea of too many Asians is something that even I am, I need to really think about. But, um, you know, essentially, how are you, how are you, what are you, what message are you trying to get across then to your, your, your students in your Asian American studies? I, I was, I'm still very intrigued by this social status order that you're talking about within minorities, but I mean, what, what is your main message then? I mean, students that leave your class, your classroom, what, what's, what do they get out of your class? If I'm talking about the affirmative action issue, so I recently completed a lecture a few weeks ago on the Harvard case, and um, one of the main points is to really scrutinize the idea that there's something called an Asian penalty. This is a phrase taken from a Princeton researcher, Thomas Espenshade's work, um, where he looks at SAT scores and admissions rates and says, you know, that Asians have to score higher in order to get admitted to Ivy League schools than white or black or Latino students. And um, so he calls this, he dubs this an Asian penalty. Now, he's been interviewed since then, um, since producing that work, and he has made it very clear he doesn't know if there's discrimination against Asians going on at Harvard. That's an empirical question, and he he can't prove it, and he doesn't know. Um, But this idea of an Asian penalty has stuck, right, and it's something that's talked about. So what I get my students to think about, um, or try to get them to think about, is how would you situate thinking about that Asian penalty within the larger social order where there's a very distinct black penalty, Mm -hmm. where there's such a strong um, penalty attached to being black in the society, and how do you weigh um, and sort of think through questions of justice and equity in the context of um, a, a social order where Asians are positioned differently from blacks, despite this sort of lie of a minority equivalence uh, status. Okay. And then my final question is about opportunity then, because we, you talk about what is the definition of diversity, but then, you know, these concepts, do they translate to the, to the real world or in terms of, you know, positions of leadership or... Um, like I said, getting your voice out. Uh, do you do you feel that Asian Americans are not necessarily not, well? I mean, don't have as many opportunities, aren't seizing the opportunities. I mean, where where do you feel we fall in, in those things? I just took a look at the the school boards, for instance, right here in Orange County. There are we are we arguably diverse there. And then where is the Asian American representation? I mean, just a small example, but mm-hmm. what do you think? I think that the uh, one of the central arguments in Asian American studies is that Asians, Asian Americans are seen as perpetually foreign, no matter how many generations they've been in this country, even if they've been born here and speak perfect English and that's their only language. Um, so I think that issue continues to... Um, be present, and um, so I think Asian Americans, you know, since the '40s, have experienced greater and greater integration into society um, by a lot of statistical measures in terms of um, residential integration, intermarriage, occupational diversification, um, income level. Right, there are a lot of different kinds of empirical measures we could use to say Asian Americans are being more and more integrated into mainstream society, and some would argue even becoming white, right? That's not something I actually agree with in terms of the language of that, but uh, there is some kind of phenomena of greater integration. But then um, the question I would ask my students, you know, if they express 
views on that topic is are, they're being integrated compared to whom? Right? What They have opportunities compared to whom? What is the relative benchmark here? And um, one of the things that concerns me, you know, uh, with Asian American students is if they only think about how Asian Americans are doing, right? Because they think that that affects me, right? How Asian Americans are doing is a matter of my self-interest. But what I'm trying to do, get them to do, is think more broadly about social justice and um, thinking beyond their self-interest to questions of um, how to make society more fair and more just for everyone and how not to sort of put on blinders and ignore entire segments of the population mm-hmm. who are dispossessed relative to them as they go on their business, go about their business worrying about their own mobility. Yes, and I, I did say my last question, but wouldn't that require the other minorities to unite with us to some degree or to, to, to change their, you know, their, we, we all kind of inherently, you know, get our identity from race. So wouldn't that involve sort of a, a, a broader discussion with Hispanics, with blacks, I mean, all across the board then to embrace our minority status and work more closely together? I think um, we do get our identities from race in this society. So I think one of the things your question is pointing to is the need um, for Asian Americans to rethink that identity, um, to broaden that identity, instead of being comfortable with sort of a narrow definition of community, uh, a narrow con- conception of self-interest. Um, and but because Asian Americans, I believe, are positioned um, in a in a status that's relatively advantaged compared to some groups, relatively disadvantaged compared to whites, relatively advantaged to some other groups. Um, I think that comes with a certain kind of ethical responsibility. Um, so it's not just a matter of sort of everyone being nice to each other, everyone getting along, everyone working together. I think for Asian Americans, it, it, it demands a kind of ethical reckoning with what their status has been historically and therefore what their responsibilities might be. You were just listening to Claire Kim, a UCI professor of Asian American Studies and Political Science on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Jill Shi of Paradigm Shift. Today's topic is Harvard's alleged racial biases against Asian Americans. We go now to a phone interview with Sarah Young, who has served as vice president for the Chinese American Association of Orange County for several years. The first question I asked her was how her organization heard about the Harvard University lawsuit filed by Students for Fair Admissions. And uh, just a heads up, the audio on this interview is a little wacky, so uh, bear with it. Thank you. We heard about this uh, complaints from pretty early stage. And, you know, and since last year, uh, due to the SA5 issue, uh, there are uh, many, many uh, Asian Americans has got really got involved. Um, so on the social media, uh, like one of the main forms is called WeChat, and mm-hmm. uh, we form a lot of groups on WeChat. So we have been constantly talking about uh, different issues. And through this whole process, we got to know a lot of people across the nation. And so when these uh, complaints come up, and we already know these people, and so we heard about the issue so <clears throat> uh, very early on. 
And uh, mm-hmm. so that's when we decided we, uh, to join uh, this campaign. Okay. And um, so then how do you, just reading through all the, you know, whatever you saw on, you know, the social media, and um, how do you feel Harvard has been exhibiting preferential treatment, or how do you think they've been violating the civil rights for Asian Americans? And I think this issue has existed for uh, many years. And uh, as uh, you mentioned, um, I'm with the American Chinese Association of Orange County. Our main members are the parents. And so, you know, the, as uh, Asian parents, you know, one of the top uh, uh, priority is kids' education. And uh, so we are well uh, aware that uh, for Asian American kids, when they apply college, mm-hmm. and how difficult difficult and how competitive it has been for these uh, top schools. And but in the past, a lot of parents, they just, uh, you know, accept as the way it is, really didn't give much thought about, okay, is this uh, discrimination? There's something unfair about that. It's just uh, for as the parents, we all feel the pressure. We all feel the competitive. And because all your friends, they, we know, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, how difficult this uh, process has been. Okay. And certainly, um, you know, dealing with the parent, you know, working with the parents, um, you, you hear a lot of stories and, and of their children getting in or not getting in. But why is it that, um, why Harvard University, why, why Ivy League schools when, you know, there are, other schools available to the students to, to get good education? Why is it that um, it's important to go to, say, a Harvard University? Well, certainly Harvard is not the only school has this issue. Mm-hmm. And there are many other Ivy League schools, the top universities. But mm-hmm. Harvard is the flagship of the top university in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the standard for the U.S. education. So when people talk about U.S. education and you talk about Harvard, they look at it as the standard, you know. And so there's high respect for Harvard. So we think, okay, Harvard has, you know, set the standard for the U.S. education. So that's why um, we use Harvard as a start. So that's certainly that they are not the only school have this issue. Right. So, I mean... Within the Asian American culture, it is—I guess that's kind of where I'm going with the question. It, uh, parents want their kids to go to the top schools. That's something that's pretty common and um, something—a standard that they shoot for within their own families, right? Uh, that's certainly, and uh, you know, uh, Asian parents—they—they they want their kids get the best education they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then, um, you know, Harvard did issue a statement, I'm sure you've, you've read it, um, saying that they, their admissions policies are based on more of a holistic, looking at the holistic process, which is that they don't just look at student scores or test score, you know, test scores or grades, but they actually just look at more of an overall view of the uh, students. Do you feel that, um, that that statement of looking at a student from a holistic view, meaning their extracurricular, 
their talents, their aspirations, their experience. Do you think that puts Asian Americans at a disadvantage, or do you think that uh, you agree with that statement? Where do you guys stand on it? Well, uh, um, I don't think that uh, we don't disagree with that approach, and mm-hmm. uh, we don't uh, disagree that uh, the college admission is not only look at the test score. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we don't see anything wrong with a holistic approach, mm-hmm. but it doesn't put the Asian kids at a disadvantage because the Asian kids are not just uh, doing well on the test degree. And uh, just as I mentioned earlier, and uh, with our member prime the parents, so we know a lot of students, and they are not only doing well in the test score, their GPAs. They are the leaders at the school. They are the student, at the student council, and they do volunteers. And they do a lot of extracurriculum. That's how my kids get raised. So all the kids, when they, you know, when they grow up, they all take different activities: the sports, the music, the art. And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of extracurriculum. Uh, it's part of the life in the U.S. Yeah. Um, so I don't see like the Asian. Uh, Americans are different as any other race because that's the environment. And the kids grow up at the school. The school provides all different clubs, all different activities. And it's just natural that kids join these activities based on their interest, based on their talent. So when you talk about a holistic approach, uh, that's fine. But Asian Americans are no different as any, any other kids in terms of yes. extracurriculum. Yes. Okay. And then um, just to kind of say the other side of it, um, they're also saying that they're, the Harvard College is also saying that they've increased their Asian American student admittance from 17.6% to 21% over the, the past decade. So they're sort of arguing that they are trying to recruit and admit more Asian American students. But what would make your organization uh, feel satisfied? I mean, is that number still kind of, is that not enough, or where, what do you think of that, that statistic? Well, I don't think that the number itself is that important, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, let's say for Asian, because uh, we really think that, you know, for the college admission, the risk should not be the consideration. So if risk is not a consideration, the number is really not relevant, you know, and if we, mm-hmm. You got this year, you got some Amer- uh, Asian Americans are outstanding, you admit more, that's fine. If next year and you don't have enough good students and you admit less. So, but if you look at statistics number for the last 20 years probably, and the admission rate is quite flat. And uh, probably is between like 16 to 20 percent. But you look at the population of um, uh, Asian Americans has more than double. And mm-hmm. just statistically, it just doesn't make sense. Right. And uh, you know what I mean? So because you, you just from scientific statistics point of view, and if you are not really looking at the race as a consideration for the college admission, and the number should not be so stable. And mm-hmm. so it should vary. And uh, also, if you look at the uh, Asian American has more than double, why the number stays so flat? Mm-hmm. 
So how so how far will your organization go with? Because like you said, there's so many other colleges and universities, Ivy League universities, that sort of do the same. You know, you're experiencing the same thing. Um, what's your guys' next step? I mean, you're going to wait out the, this lawsuit, but then will you continue on with the other universities, or what's the next step? Well, the first, the the, uh, the complaint we filed is not a lawsuit, and uh, mm-hmm. so the lawsuit they're independently, and uh, I think you probably heard that the lawyer at Baum in Texas mm-hmm. has filed a separate lawsuit against Harvard and the uh, uh, University of Carolina, mm-hmm. and. And uh, so this complaint, it's, uh, it's, it's different as a lawsuit, but it basically we, uh, bring that up to the, um, education department to say, okay, just department, uh, we think that, uh, from the third party, uh, there is a uh, discrimination against the uh, Asian American and ask them to investigate. And okay. so, uh, we haven't heard back, uh, yet. So we're hoping we can, they can respond soon. And, uh, mm-hmm. To see, you know, because what we want is if the Harvard say no, we we're not doing that. Then if they can open their book to really show the data, and uh, that's the first step we want them to really show us the data. So you, uh, just make the whole admission process be more transparent. And uh, we have nothing against their holistic approach. And if they claim that they are fair to all the races, why don't they just, uh, you know? Um, Open the book to show everyone to see how do they do the evaluation and uh, just publish all the all the data and uh, I think then people can tell you know and uh, uh, if they are fair or if they have any discrimination against any races and uh, so this is the uh, where we are the kind the first step we hope that we we can achieve and um, and uh, in the meantime we also you know do a um, a lot of we try to reach out um, to more organizations, and also we also reach out to uh, lawmakers and try to get them also support um, uh, our complaint. And we so that uh, you know we've been working on just try to reach out to more people. Okay. And then uh, one of my last questions is: um, Do you think this is also a product of? Uh, like you, you mentioned earlier, that, that this is like a, a very competitive time um, in, in getting into universities now. Do you think it's also, apart from the issue of race, that, it, you know, it's so competitive to get into these universities now? And um, I don't know if that's economy-driven or, or where we're, we're at as a whole in society, but do you think that also plays into this issue? Um, I think the competitive uh, play into issue about the uh, discrimination. No, no. Apart from the racial part, uh, you know, the discrimination part, um, do you think that it's just very competitive across the board to get into these universities? It's becoming increasingly more competitive over the past, I don't know, few years now. Yeah, that, I think that that's that's fine. I would, I, I think everyone understands. Um, because for the top universities, it's not only the top students in the U.S., it's also the top students across the, um, the worldwide. And uh, we all understand that all the top universities, they will be very, very competitive. And uh, all we ask is just to be fair to everyone. Yeah. So, 
it's not we ask give us any uh, privilege or special treatment. Uh, just uh, just to be fair to everyone. So that's okay. what we are uh, we are fighting for. And right, and you know, thank you for clarifying. I just um, what would make you guys very satisfied? You talked about um, opening up the books and just showing you the data, but would it also would changing policies and rewriting language make you guys feel more satisfied in this issue? What what would it take for these Ivy League universities to reassure, you know, the parents you work with that, you know, race is not an issue here? Yeah, well, I hope that, uh, you know, when they open the book, they can show everyone and to see how they do it. And uh, mm-hmm. if they do have some, you know, the quota or something uh, that based on the race, and of course we want them to really change the policy and really become race blind, you know. And uh, when when uh, uh, students apply for college, it shouldn't matter what kind of what race they are. It don't matter is what kind of person they are. So maybe someday they they you know when you fill an application you don't have to see your race and they don't have to really look at the race and they can look at you know and their all the activities uh, they are great they are test score and they are you know leadership everything but not the you know the race and uh, if they can achieve that you know get to that point I think we'll be very happy um, and also I want to clarify that is not a way against. You know, like um, um, say, you know, all the people. There's no any special treatment. We there's some people, you know, and uh, they have a different, uh, let's say, like uh, and the privileged kids, and they have financial difficulty, and uh, we're also, you know, give um, uh, uh, some uh, special treatment for these kids because they have uh, uh, some. Hardship, you know, it's difficult for them to achieve the same thing as other kids when they have access to a better education. And mm-hmm. uh, so we're all for that. It's just, I think it's just one thing we really don't want to see that happen is uh, you admit uh, students based on something that they cannot change. Because race is one thing you are born with, you cannot change. And uh, so we don't want to give the kids all because they are born. Uh, as an Asian American, they are at the disadvantage, and uh, no matter how hard they try, they're not the same as other kids, and that's not the value American system is. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And um, again, we're talking to Sarah Young, and um, I have one more final question. This one is: I've been reading, you know, the, both sides of this issue, and one of the things that comes up in opinion pieces is. Um, sort of criticism against uh, groups that are, are, are filing this complaint, as you stated, that are we fostering a sense of entitlement, meaning, you know, we work hard, we get the grades, we do all these things, extracurricular, you know, our, you know, our children or the students are doing everything they need to to get into these colleges, so they're they're supposed to be getting into Harvard. They're, it's a sense of entitlement. Um, what, what's your response to, you know, people who are, are saying that your organization and the 59 others that are filing this complaint are fostering a sense of entitlement for Asian American students? Well, I, I don't 
think anyone feel like they are entitled to get into Harvard, and even the the top students. And uh, uh, they know, you know, this because uh, as we all talk about the holistic approach, and also everyone know, and uh, how competitive to get into Harvard. So no matter how outstanding, how excellent you are, and uh, people know, they are not guaranteed to get into Harvard. And I, I don't think uh, you know any student I, um, that they they feel they are so confident they uh, <laughs> to get into Harvard. Okay. And, and so, and also, as I mentioned earlier, Harvard is just, uh, you know, one, one college. There are many, many colleges. I think most of the students know they are not going to get into Harvard. And so they are going to other colleges. There are many, many good colleges, depend on, you know, the, the different students. They are going to get into different uh, colleges. So this mm-hmm. complaint is not saying that you are entitled or you should go to Harvard. This is really about equal rights. And, uh, so it is not only Harvard, all the university, and uh, we hope that when they look at the mission, they don't take race into consideration. They really look at the qualification uh, of the individual. And uh, no matter they go to Harvard, they go to other schools, and not top uh, Ivy League schools, it's just any, you know, any university the students go, and uh, it's because who they are, you know, as, uh, you know, what they do, not, uh, you know, their, their race. On NPR's All Things Considered, Jim Jump, a former president of the National Association of College Admissions Counseling, said that the admissions process is really about building a class of differences rather than admitting a bunch of individuals. When asked by NPR's Arun Roth if there was a way to achieve diversity without discriminating against someone, Jump had this to say. way to get this right without discriminating against Someone. Well, whether discriminating is the right word, I, I think the um, the longtime dean of admissions at Harvard, Bill Fitzsimmons, I, I heard him speak once here in Richmond, and he said, you know, the admissions process is eminently rational; it's just not fair. And what he meant by that is, you know, institutions choose based on what their institutional needs are, and they're not necessarily going to be fair to every individual because they can't pick every individual. This is Jill Shee with Paradigm Shift on KUCI 88.9 FM. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments about today's show, please email paradigmshift at KUCI.org. Thank you for listening, and join us next Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Up next, Beer Ambassadors with Michael Woodward.